The winemakers are up next, but first, check out this other great show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Destination Eat Drink. I'm Brent Peterson. Each week on the podcast, we visit a different foodie city and explore the cuisine that makes that place special, whether it be custard tarts in Lisbon, mango beer in Mumbai, or lizard curry in Guatemala. Download Destination Eat Drink today on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. That sounded like the perfect pour. It sounded like that sounded like somehow they let us into Napa. They did. <laughs> my, my papers were in order, and we, right. and we are here. They, they checked our papers at the border. <laughs> Absolutely, we couldn't bring Bart. It was only three of us. <laughs> only three of us allowed in. Oh, good morning, everybody. Hey, I am John Myers, and we are the winemakers. I'm sitting here with Sam Paturi and Brian Casey, and our guest today, Maya Dalavala. Valet. Valet. Excuse me. Right. You know, it, it is a tough one, and I've been practicing. He only practiced we were, we were like for an hour. Valet. Okay. There you got it. Okay. Well, and there may have been some people, you know, back at Winery 16600 who were intentionally or unintentionally sabotaging <laughs> that. <laughs> Shout out, Paul White. Uh, well, anyway, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank Cheers. you for having me. Cheers. Thank you for inviting us to um, this property. Um it's a place that I've driven past a lot uh, on my way, you know, uh, just up the ridge to Oakville Ranch um, and is, you know, legendary in, in Napa, um, you know, sort of the Napa history of the last 35, 40 years. Um, and so it's, it's an honor to have you on and sort Thank of talk about the, the next generations and, you know, what you're doing here and yeah, the farming absolutely. and all that. Um, and we get to try the wines, John. That's a good right. idea. <laughs> this is a really good idea. I'm just taking photos ulterior right now. Ulterior motives. <laughs> well, there's no so problem. So, Sam, with you that. drive past here when normally you're heading toward when you yeah. So, yeah. Oakville Ranch is a quarter mile. Um, for is it a do we call this a driveway out there? The, is it a? It's not a public road, it's right? Not. It's a private access road. Yeah. It's yeah, it's a road. It's a road. Um, <laughs> we were laughing. There's a place called Shen Blue down in the Rhone region that I go to, and it's got a road like that. Mm-hmm. Only it's like an hour to go up. And it, oh, seriously? and and if there's somebody coming back down, you really do have to make sure you know where those turnouts are, mm-hmm. because other than that, it's 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 a drop off. Yes, or sometimes you can get into a road battle with some neighbors, which is really exciting. <laughs> How nice! Yeah, <laughs> really, it sounds like a lot of fun. Oh but, yeah, it's a joy. The thing that you guys have figured out here is to not take your grapes anywhere. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Because <laughs> that's the, exactly. the at Oakville Ranch will load up, you know. Uh, five tons of fruit on the back of a flatbed and you got to get to you know calistoga yeah and you got to start down this road and you know as i was saying brian those five tons are like you know our annual salary right and- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you do not yeah. want to drop well it can't it can't help the roads i mean five tons on on a road like that it just i mean it's got a trash it don't, don't say that so loud John. Yeah. Come well, on. you're not the only ones either yeah. no i mean no. look at look at cave dale and some of those others you know oakfield they've they've just gone um yeah. and you know it's it's not a public road so who puts it back in the neighbors 
Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a neighborhood thing. But, and you know, when, when Dalavale was built, you could build wineries right. on the top of a hill like this. Yeah. So you can't really and do now, that. Now um, it would never happen. It would be impossible. Yeah. So maybe we should start, um, shockingly from the beginning. It's very <laughs> off brand. Yeah. Well, um, let's, what uh, we always do. The <laughs> sort of the history of, of Dalavale, your, your parents, was this, raw land when your parents found it and this was like the mid 80s right yeah they came in here in uh, 1982 and um they originally came um with the opportunity to invest in a really a chateau type of property but as you know you know with the ag preserve that's pretty near impossible to find but in the meantime i just fallen in love with the valley and um they came upon this site which had i think like an acre of fruit and acre of grapes on it and um love the view they i mean it's hard not to yeah love we're here. should we for the sake of this being a radio show <laughs> yes. um set the scene john we're looking out over northern napa valley at which, I would say, which, I call the central napa it's valley it's, this is we're looking out over the oakville district mm-hmm. okay yeah. and what are those mountains directly across those are the mayakamas that's that's like the back side of mm-hmm. of trinity road it's Oak, right. the oakville yeah. grade uh, you know, out there to behind me is, you know, Opus One, Mondavi. Mm-hmm. You could probably, if, you know, straight line to Harlan. Yep. Um, yep. Easy, easy. And uh, yeah, you look down into Screaming Eagle from here, too. Right. So. Well, I like the view. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but I know I'm going to like the wines even better. Combined, they're incredible. This yeah. is a nice spot. It really is. <laughs> so, yeah, so your parents, well, maybe we should even... Take a step further back okay. and, and give your folks the the proper due. Um, Dallavale uh, is your dad's your last name. Last he name, was yeah. a he was Italian. Yes. and your mom is mom from is, Japan, yeah, right? Yeah, she's from Kobe, Japan. Okay. So my dad, um, before going into the wine business, was in the scuba diving business. So he had oh, a company called that. Scuba Pro yeah, right. that he co-founded. Um, and was travel a lot for work and then met my mom in Tokyo through a mutual friend and uh, that was it. So they got married and uh, they were living in the West Indies actually in Mystique at wow. the time. So uh, at a certain point, my mom really wanted to have a family and it's a really tough place to raise kids. There's not a lot of schools and uh, a, lot a lot of, of scuba in diving. General. A lot of diving. Yeah, yeah absolutely. A lot of diving. Um, and my dad had sold his company at that point. So he was very much a Renaissance man. He loved to try everything once in his life. So he was like a bullfighter. He had an antique <laughs> shop. He uh, was on the rugby team in Italy. Um, like during World War II, he was uh, working like with the British as a spy and in the Alps. So he did all kinds of, yeah, it was like, what, like the most interesting man in the world right. type of situation. <laughs> Where was his favorite place to dive? You know, I wish I could ask him that because he passed away when I was very young. But I know he loved, I mean, he obviously loved the West Indies and spent a lot of time in Haiti as well um, <laughs> before the dictatorship. And so I would say, I would guess to say the West Indies, but I would have to ask my mom. I'm sure she would know the answer and I come back to you. The Scuba Pro was a great company. It was a great company. It still is. It still yeah. is. It's owned by I, Johnson & Wax now. I just quit yeah. diving. Oh, did you? Yeah. I, you know, yeah. It, just, it, it takes you away from 
the rest of your life. It does. Because you know you were you were either I was either in Belize or Cancun or mm-hmm. uh, you know the islands off of Florida somewhere. Right. You know, and uh, we we did it a lot. And so, you know, it, it takes a lot of money to go and do something it's that expensive. takes you away from your life. Yeah. You know? so. I mean, not that it takes you to really bad places. I don't no, I like, I like, uh, <laughs> I like uh, um, diving in Belize especially. Yeah, you know? I've heard it's really spectacular. Cave dives that you just, you know, you can go in an entryway that's the side of a, size mm-hmm. of a bus. And you can get in there and old Maya ruins that are still Whoa, floor to so ceiling cool. tiled and all these... Uh, phosphorescent sea sprites lighting it up it's yeah it's amazing very religious experience very cool yeah <laughs> it's just like exploring a whole nother world when you die it is and you don't have to talk and <laughs> yeah. i think Island. cayman was my cayman brack was my favorite place you, you take a plane in just land on the highway the one road and then he would dump you off and take off again come pick you up in a few days <laughs> that's a good idea well john living on on maui was once you had all the equipment, it, it wasn't expensive anymore. You had well, you all the stuff. just walk out. And my favorite thing to do was on nights where you'd all look at each other and instead of going out to the bars, you'd say, what are we going to do tonight? Let's go dive. Yeah. And you just grab your crap, yeah. go, and at night, it's a lot more fun. Um, I, I did, <laughs> did a lot off of Maui. It was fun. Yeah. We dove a few. Um, there were some planes from World War II that were very cool. Yeah. I enjoyed that a lot. Well, the sharks are out, and then the and then during whale season, sharks. when you when you hear the, <laughs> mm-hmm, and you're almost wow. afraid to turn your head because you yeah. think there might be right there. <laughs> it was super fun. Well, Brian, you poured us a wine. What what are we pouring? So, my I don't know what order you had planned on yeah, going in. Oh, this is perfect. Okay. okay, this is exactly the order. Yeah, so we got the nineteen Colina. Yes. So this is a 2019 Colina della Valle. So ironically, our last name means of the valley in Italian. And so and Colina means hill. So it's a pretty literal name, hill of the valley, which is what we're sitting on. Right. Um, should, maybe should we like, I mean, we kind of talked about it, but we're at about 400 feet elevation right now. Yeah, it's about 500 feet at the peak, okay. I would say, because it's like we, the way we are on this like topography wise it's like this little bench so you have oak pole ranch up at the top and then it slides down and it has this little valley behind us which is peter michael and then we kind of go back up on this little bench that perches down into the valley floor right. so um it's yeah i would say at the peak is about, about 500, 500. and it's sort of a series of because i kind of think of oakville ranch as sitting like a bench land kind mm-hmm. of it's so like it's a sort of own like, valley in uh, totally there. and yeah. then we're sort of on like another step down towards the, yeah. the valley floor here exactly right. exactly it looks a lot higher than it is at 500 feet. Well, it's an that, optical illusion. That drive, <laughs> the, the road up here makes you think you're, you know, going yeah. high into the Alps or something yeah. for sure. I mean, the road was built in the late 1800s. So it's oh my over God. 100 years old. It, I don't think it was intended right. for, you know, it big. Uh, yeah, it was for horses. Car. Yeah, for horses. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Maybe pull a carriage up there. Perhaps. That's tough yeah. too. Though. It'd be yeah. scary going down. Yeah. Yeah. There's like a there's a book called Ghost Wineries of Napa Valley, and they talk about the ghost winery that was originally up at Oakville Ranch and why this road was built. And they it was called the Jellison Winery. And they talk about like how you access it from the Silverado Trail. And so there's these two columns and pillars which are still there. Right. 
that were um, constructed by Chinese immigrants. It was actually a historical wall. And so then you go up this treacherous, narrow road, <laughs> almost harrowing up to the top, and then you see Jellison Winery. So it's pretty accurate because it's exactly the same as yeah. it was 100 years ago. Slightly more paved than it was. Right, right. <laughs> what happened to Jellison? Uh, I think it was one of the wineries that went away during Prohibition because that was a pre-Prohibition uh, winery. And then um, I think... Yeah, they closed during Prohibition and after, I believe, was sold and changed hands and then just became abandoned, I think. I'm amazed that this place was available in the 80s. Yeah, I think at that time, a lot of people were more interested in Valley Floor. You know, the soil's fertile. It's uh, really easy to get a lot of tonnage. I think it was before, I think at that point, early 80s, people were starting to understand more the value of mountain and hillside fruit um because i mean when my dad decided to plant more vineyards here um basically people told him that he was really stupid to think that he, he would make a successful business growing grapes on a hillside like this really how yeah. interesting is yeah. that yeah. <laughs> how'd that work out yeah i think i think it worked out pretty well for my parents luckily for them and it my, at that time, who was making the wine? Um, so in the first few vintages, it was Joe Cafaro, mm -hmm. um, who helped us kind of set up the vineyard and get the cuttings and plant and make the wine. But he was also the winemaker at Robert Sinsky at the time. So mm -hmm. he was um, pretty busy. So he helped us through 86 to 88 vintages. And then in 89, um, my parents hired Heidi Barrett who was with us yeah for several years after and that. what was what was your dad's thought process in buying the <laughs> the property and that he just was a wine lover and wanted to be, it was his next thing that he kind of wanted to get into yeah so my grandfather had had a winery in alto aldige mm -hmm. so my dad grew up in the veneto region so near the dolomites in a town called basano del grappa and um you know had some I would say very minor experiences in the winery in Alto Aldige. Um, but then I think was re-inspired after coming here and realizing that they weren't going to be able to do a hotel or restaurant. Like, oh, well, let's make wine. And was inspired also because they were selling the fruit at the time. The previous owner was selling the little bit of fruit they had to Camus. Mm -hmm. And so Chuck Wagner came up and introduced himself to my dad and said, you know, I'd like to still keep purchasing this fruit. Can I? And my dad said, no. And my mom was with him. And she's like, what? <laughs> Should I, said, I talk yeah. about this first? Uh. Yeah. So my mom describes it like stepping on a banana peel and sliding into the wine industry because then <laughs> they're like, okay, so let's plant more vineyards. Um, and then at that time, there really wasn't a lot of custom crush or the minimum would be mm. 60, 70 tons if you were going to do any kind of custom crush. So it's like, okay. And you had to get it down the hill. Yeah. Right. Right. So like, okay, let's build a winery. So built the winery and then, yeah, started at 86 and just took off from there. Wait a minute. And at that point, how old are you? Uh, I was born in 87. So right. I was not in existence <laughs> oh at that point. <laughs> okay. Right. Yeah. Start a winery, plant a vineyard, have a baby. Yeah. All in this yeah, span yeah. of three, four years. Wow. 
Yeah. Probably get a couple corgis too or something. <laughs> make <laughs> or it make, make yeah. life really complicated. Right. <laughs> I got to admit, I love the fact you have two corgis out there. That I mean, <laughs> John, that's really why I, it wasn't for the wine. It's not for the vineyard. It's, it's the not, corgis. you know, uh, it's it's inspiring corgis. next generation winemaker. It was the corgis. Yeah. I was like, I know. I'm, that's, you know, the only way that we're going to be allowed into a Napa winery is if they have corgis. <laughs> <laughs> The corgis are probably more popular than the wine or myself or anyone else here. So let's be honest. They're the real celebrities. And, and the wine is pretty popular. Let's not, under, yeah. let's not undersell it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Should we just quickly or not quickly, however, talk about the what we just poured and it'll be started to and then got way sidetracked. Yeah. Um, so this is 2019 Kalina uh, Dalavale. Yes. Is this is this released yet? Is this the? It's uh, the, it's all these wines are going to be going released. To be released. So it's like a sneak preview Sweet. into nineteen yeah. vintage. Um, so this is a red blend that we initially started making in two thousand seven after we had replanted the entire vineyard. Um, so unfortunately, nothing is original planting from the eighties. Um, we were forced due to a number of different issues um, to replant everything including you know the maya block which meant we didn't make maya for two vintages so it was a pretty difficult period of time um which was we were able like an axr phylloxera issue it or? wasn't axr um but it was just a number of issues like we had oak root fungus we had huge nematode issue um we had a lot of scion rooting going hmm. on which then led to phylloxera of course right, right. um and then yeah, it was just, you know, problem after problem after problem. And it just um, was, we couldn't really save anything. But after that, we were, we then made the transition to organic farming, okay. which has been really probably the most important decision we made for the vineyard since it started. Um, but the Kalina, mm -hmm. we started making because we had a lot of young vines and uh, some of the, you know, some of the vines came back right away and we're making great quality wines with a lot of depth and intensity and others were very fruit forward, very fresh, um, but kind of lacking that seriousness that we look for, for the Cabernet or Maya. So, um, we decided to make Kalina and then now obviously all the vines are back into full production with a good amount of age. So now it just becomes, comes down to making a blend. That's, you know, something you could pull a cork, um, enjoy on a weeknight, or for a younger consumer who's maybe not ready to invest in a more expensive bottle of wine like Cabernet or Maya, but want to understand a little bit about what we do, it's a really great introduction into it. And what is the blend? Uh, so the 19 is 50% Cabernet, 40% Cabernet Franc, and then 10% Petit Verdot. And, and what do you have growing up here? Those three grapes. Just, just yeah. those three. And yeah. it's not, it's only 20, 25, Yeah. And everything's a state, obviously. Everything's a state. At yeah. a certain point, we were um, working with Oak Bowl Ranch um, to buy a little bit of fruit to go into the Kalina while we, were, we did the last three acre replant. But now all that's kind of shifted over for DBO. Yeah. So it's kind of, which is the other project that I work on. So now it's back to all, all estate. Sam, you made a comment. You didn't have to take the grapes anywhere from this place. And that's amazing. No trucks with yeah. five tons all yeah, hauling it across. Yeah, perfect. Yeah. So it makes it easy. I mean, we do our farming in-house, so we have our own crew. 
Um, so it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty luxurious in that way because you can go out even that morning and say, you know, let, let's pick this section and hold off on finishing this part till later. And you can do that really easily. Whereas like if you have a farming company, they have a, you know, already a very full schedule for the day. And I mean, yeah. even if they did, would do it, I feel bad asking them cause I know how slammed they are during harvest. So knowing that, you know, this is all we're going to do for the day. It's easy to make right. those minor adjustments. As, as things change in the, in the cellar and, yeah. you know, and just knowing there's a property you grew up on. Right. And you know when, you know, everything tastes exactly perfect. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. You have a good <laughs> sense of it for sure. And what is what is total production for you guys? Uh, it's uh, three thousand cases on average. Wow. Yeah. And most of it sold to wine club members or restaurants. It's a it's a mix. I would say about sixty percent of our business is direct. We like to keep the rest for wholesale and export, um, just because I think it's really important for visibility for our wines to be seen in other places. Um, because we are closed to the public and we can't offer any hospitality. Mm -hmm at the winery it's um it limits the amount of new consumers or new people who will be interested in your wine you mean this table that we're sitting at mm -hmm. you don't normally do tasting no. just, she put it in just for us Brian. yeah <laughs> i i carved this table actually <laughs> just for the occasion this morning yeah <laughs> so so even if you're a member of Dalavala, there's no opportunity to come do a tasting. Yeah, and that's also due to a permitting restriction that we have. Right. So, like as you know, in Napa Valley, everything's very, very regulated, and we don't have a tasting room permit, so we cannot legally cannot offer tastings here. So oh, how interesting. Did, so yeah. how did you then get at at first? How did you get the wines out there? Uh. It was just by word of mouth. We had like, I think people came like friends of my parents would come up um, and come and taste and, you know, just here and there. But yeah, it was actually, um, we were with the distributor with Wilson Daniels in the very yeah. beginning. So that was most of the business. And then someone um, called my mom who actually became one of our really old close family friends and said, you should really sell this direct you should sell like directly to the customer. And she's like, how, what do you mean? She said, yeah, you open a mailing list and then you send an offering by letter at that time. And then people will fax or, you know, mail it back and then you process the order. So it just started that. And I have to say too, what really um, helped, you know, us gain a lot of notoriety was with the Maya wine, which we'll taste later, but with the 92 vintage of Maya, we got a hundred points by Robert Parker. And that is like the wine that put us on the map. So people like then just start calling and calling and the demand went through the roof. Well, and that's kind of like the time that era from the yeah. mid eighties to the early nineties, when that shift went away from every winery, just anything you made, you, Set, sold to a distributor and they took it out and you know right. and sort of the shift to DTC and yeah. and people having knowledge that they got from you know the wine advocate that they didn't have yeah. 10 years earlier right it right. didn't exist um, yeah so that was super a, interesting. yeah that was a very let's talk I mean I, I think part of it's being the right place at the right time um, for sure and then 
also, I think my parents, I know my parents had a very clear vision of what they wanted to do. While they didn't know initially that they wanted to be in the wine industry, they said, okay, if we're going to do this, like we want to make a great wine of the world and not cut any corners ever. It's yeah. always going to be about the quality of the wine and having wine that can age and that has balance. So that's, I think, a very important thing to have when you're starting a winery or a wine brand is to have that kind of vision. Yeah. Well, can we talk about your history a little bit? You know, you were five years old when yeah. Robert Parker gives you, you know, yeah. gives your parents a hundred point <laughs> score. You kind of grew up in this. Yeah. I know you studied it uh, uh, academically, mm -hmm. but would you, you know, growing up going, this is what I want to do. Oh, absolutely I want to not. No, right. I mean, did you know that's what you No, totally. I went, I went to Reno, Nevada and was a lobbyist. So <laughs> I, I had to sell alcohol to cleanse my soul. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's fair. It's yeah. all about balance, right? Yeah. No, growing up, I had zero interest. I mean, I was exposed to it, of course, being immersed in it, growing up on this property. Um, but I really had no interest to be part of the wine business. Um, but I always liked tasting wine. Like my parents always had me taste wines as a kid. So I had a pretty good understanding of wine, um, from that aspect. But I think it took me leaving the Napa Valley to start thinking about, and then start thinking about what I wanted to do with my future, right. um, to realize, oh, actually, you know, like wine business isn't that bad. So <laughs> Maybe where did, is there something there for me? Where did you go? I went to University of Washington okay. in Seattle. So I studied international relations and I thought I wanted to, you know, graduate and go into foreign service or something. I wanted to get out. I wanted to like go to a big public school. Like I grew up in small schools because it's a small community. Where'd you go to high school in Napa? I went I went to a couple of different high schools. Okay. I went to Ursuline, which no longer exists. R.I.P. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe not for... There we go. There's the Corgi, yeah, John. Shout out, Ursula. Yeah. As promised. <laughs> Get him up here. Yeah. Come on, Yuki. Maybe I'll come. Yuki. And then I went to boarding school for one year at Santa Catalina, which I really didn't like. Um, so then I came back. And then at that point, I could drive. So I went to Sonoma Academy okay. when it was in the Luther Burbank Center. All right, great. Yeah. Okay. So that was like a class of 30 when I graduated. And then I remember visiting these like liberal arts colleges and saying, you're not a number here. Like you're a person. I was like, I want to be a number. Like <laughs> I am tired of being like have all this attention. Like I want to see how, if I can actually make it in the real world. Be anonymous. Yeah, exactly. And that's like something I never had the opportunity to have. So I loved it. But then I graduated during the recession and like I was already kind of dabbling in some like summer jobs in wine. So I worked um, in the in the Kermit Lynch office in St. Helena with Bruce Nyers. Mm -hmm. I did like an internship awesome. over the summer. I worked in the Robert Mondavi tasting room and found out really quickly that I do not want to do <laughs> hospitality. <laughs> Wait, say tell us why. Um I think, well, first of all, I'm introverted. So it's like, it's like putting on a show for eight hours and then just like taking your face off and yeah. feeling there's like nothing left inside of you at the end of the day after interacting with people. So that was really hard for me. And then, I don't know, I just, I think probably it was also the fact I was working for a big corporation. So it wasn't Mandavi anymore. Like I grew up knowing Bob and Margaret and the Mandavi family. There was, Margaret was still there at the time, but she was like a more symbolic figure. Yeah. But everything else, like, I just hated all the corporate rules around it. It made me 
really not happy. So I knew that wasn't, that wasn't going to be it for me. And so I decided to work harvest at Nyers Vineyards. Um, I worked under Tadeo, the winemaker there, and he was just like, gave me the best first experience of actually working harvest and took time to like show Is me that in, in the cellar or in, in the, the cellar. Yeah. yeah. Cause they, but they buy a lot of fruit. So but I was able to go see vineyards in like Contra Costa County, a lot in Sonoma County. Um, and then they have their estate vineyard out in Con Valley and San, outside of San Elena. And it was just a really eye-opening experience. And I love the aspect of being able to be hands-on and like, there's artistic side of it. And also there's a very technical scientific side. So I was like, this is great. Like it combines all these things that I love and that every day is different, especially during harvest. It's like, that's where I just thrive. I love it. It's like Christmas every day. Um, so then weird Christmas. <laughs> yeah. The past few have been less yeah. Christmas, like yeah. um, more harrowing and apocalyptic, but <laughs> when last, last year was good. Um, so then I told my mom, you know, I, this is why I want to be, I want to be a winemaker and I love to make the wine here. And she's like, that's nice. And you know, like we don't hire anybody, not even an intern without an enology degree. So if you think you're going to work here just like that, like that's not going to happen. So you have to go back to school. So then that led me to apply to grad school. And then I ended up going to Cornell. Um, cause at that time it seemed different and something that would be uh interesting to learn about like cool climate viticulture know that i never want to do that that was so much work um and just experience you know a, a different wine region and so and then just kept rolling from there and then after i graduated i wanted to work abroad so that's i worked at ornelia Maceto in tuscany oh, okay. um in 13 I had a great experience there. And then I went to work in Argentina at Michelle Roland's winery down there. And, and then was going to come back and work in Napa. And then we had a family friend who said, you should really work in Bordeaux if you're serious about making um, Bordeaux varietals and working them. I was like, mm, like, I don't know. Like, I grew up taking French. And then I always had this like, we like, you know, when you go to Paris as an American tourist, like people just treat you like shit and you're just like, this is really unappealing to me. <laughs> That's how that kind of the thought I had in my head. But he said, okay, give me your resume. Let's see what happens. Okay. And they send my resume. And then two weeks later, he said, okay, uh, Patrice will take you. Will you go if it's Patrice? I'm like, yeah. I mean, obviously. <laughs> I, could, I could handle some condescension. Yeah. <laughs> So that, yeah, then I went and then I had to eat all my words about France because I absolutely loved it. And I ended up staying for three years. So it was a wow. great experience. You could spend time in a different place and it would be a lot worse. I yeah. Lo I love France. I mean, yeah, really I nice. am a big fan now. But What's your favorite area? Just to go hang in. Um, I really love the South. I think it's like Provence and like Rhone Valley, I think is spectacular. And like the Vara region, it just has so much to offer. And then you have like Burgundy and Lyon, the food in Lyon, so amazing. Um, but I mean, I love Bordeaux and the Southwest is really spectacular too. I mean, you have um, the Pyrenees and then you have the Arcachon uh, Bay. Um, so you have the huge like sand dune, the Dune de Pila, and then Bordeaux is like a great city. Um, 
where it's like probably one of the few wine regions in the world you can live in an actual city and then commute out to a winery that's within 30 minutes. Um, I think that's pretty unique. And then, yeah, farther down, like going into Basque country, it was so pretty. Oh, that, yeah. that was our favorite, the yeah. Basque country. It's really, it's just like something very different than... Driving between Barcelona and um, Bordeaux was mm. it's really nice. Yeah, it's really it. so much so enjoyable. We like the Loire too. Loire's pretty. That's the one region I didn't really get to visit. Well, not much, much wine there. going on there, really. I mean, no, there there's is, a ton of wine going on there, but, but it's it loses it in c- comparison. Yeah, I feel like it gets. Yeah, it doesn't get the credit it deserves. I just saw. The number one import out of the Loire is all, it's all the Cremant. It's all the sparkling oh, really? Loire. Everything else kind of like gets second fiddle, which is insane. You think about, yeah. you know, all the, the Chenin Blanc versions, mm-hmm. you know, that's right. Uh, Vouvray and it's like, yeah, everybody's just drinking $15 bottles of Cremant de Loire. <laughs> what, you know, makes the world go round. Right. Nothing wrong with that. And wheels. driving around outside of Bordeaux, down into Fransac, and mm-hmm. all, you know, just all yeah. these names that I knew, and we would just drive twenty minutes to the next little village and wait. Let's stop and get some wine here. Oh, let's find a little shop here. Let's have lunch here. Let's do another lunch here. Let's, you know, it's just, it's just, it's not chasing. It's just experiencing yeah. the, the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. No, I miss it. I really want to go back soon. What do you think is like the major difference business-wise from Napa and Bordeaux? Well, um, the, the major difference is that they have the Place de Bordeaux. So that is their negotiant system. And that's been in place for hundreds of years. And that's a, it's a very different way of selling wine. And I think now that chateaus are becoming more interested in doing direct sales because they see the profit margin is obviously much higher but it's so historically ingrained that you know you do your on primer and then you present the wine like the wine from the last vintage so it's like barely finished wine and then it's a lot of speculation for future pricing and the chateau releases their pricing and then the negociant takes it and then sells it and it's a uh, but they, they will buy like a huge stock of it and then hold it um, in their warehouse. They have like these immense warehouses that they can store wine for decades. Like they don't, it's a diff- very different system than huh. from a distribution model because the, with the U.S. for distribution, you want to sell out your stock. Yeah. You don't have any. But for them, it's in, they like having an inventory. So they'll have, you know, decades of vintages of, uh, different chateaus that they work with in their in their warehouse. So because it's a business that's you know hundreds of years old. So Brian, you'd enjoy spending a few days in those warehouses. Well, I'm just hoping they have a really good like fire system and like there's yeah. no earthquakes in that region. No. I mean that's like a lot yeah, of history yeah. in one right. building. Yeah. So like when Chateau La Tour, I worked there in 2015 when they um, they had exited the negociant system and do to do more direct sales and direct releases, they have this like whole subterranean cellar that is like, it looks like a bat cave. It is absolutely massive. It holds their whole entire stock of Latour. Wow. And I, yeah, I've always think about the same thing though, too. Like 
talk about putting all your eggs in one basket. Totally. Well, yeah. then there's also like, that's very Californian of us, right? We have to, wor- we worry right. about fire and earthquake right, yeah. on a, <laughs> a really legitimate concern. Yeah. Totally. Like a daily basis yeah. is today the day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the big one coming. Yeah. But that is a, I would say a, a really huge difference. Um, between Bordeaux and, and Napa business-wise is yeah. the, how the, the sales structure is set up. Um, because, I mean, viticulture and winemaking-wise, um, I think Napa's taken a lot from Bordeaux. And now we've, we have the ability to be more creative um, yeah. and use like new technology in the vineyards without having the overarching you know, um, AOC system and having to be part of those groups where you they control how much wine you can make like they have a limit of hectoliters per hectare you can produce and the profile of the wine and the techniques you use and like what you do in the vineyard um has to all be approved by yeah. them it's very highly regulated you couldn't just like throw shade cloth up for example right without them coming after you it's like what are that when you live in those communities and you have the, the your uh your HOA. HOA. Yeah. hoa right it's yeah. like having them constantly i mean that's <laughs> yeah. it's basically the same thing it's sort of this like extra legal system of you know it's not a like in france it is the government right but in it's yeah if you if you pull out too many tons or hectoliters yeah. per hectare they'll say no you can't you can't sell it it's 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 not illegal to produce that or yeah. god forbid you you know plant a couple acres of grenache here in oakville who would ever do such yeah. a crazy thing um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but do you think that system will eventually shake out i mean just because people i mean you have the internet people are yeah. they see global people think globally now so when you think of things that are so regional like that that and and with younger people maybe taking over that they'll yeah. back out of Well, there's a lot of people already leaving those systems. So like the classification systems, for example, in Saint-Emilion, Ozone left, and so does Cheval Blanc. They're no longer part, which frankly, I think most people in the U.S. don't even know or care about. So they just know the brand name. So it's less impactful. But I think they're going to have to adapt or they're going to really have a huge issue because... Like, yeah, climate change is here. Climate change is real. Yeah. Why are you going to make people whose livelihoods depend on growing grapes and making wines jobs nearly impossible or force yeah. them to lose entire year's crop because you can't have the right to irrigate? Like, things like that. Right. Like, I think at a certain point, things will have to adopt, which they are slowly. They allowed new grape varietals into the Bordeaux AOC system. It's like they just hate to admit that they have to do something. Yeah, they're very steeped in tradition, (laughs) for sure. Which is, you know, on the one hand, great because it preserves a lot of the integrity of the area and the region. But on the other hand, yeah, you really like, well, you would rather have zero wine in that year than try to allow for new experimental you know, technology or techniques Mm. to help save or salvage some of your fruit. It's tough. Well, what do you think was the greatest thing that you learned from Bordeaux that you brought home? That's hard. The greatest thing, I mean, for me, it was really about honing in on viticulture and understanding the importance of how important it is to properly grow grapes and invest time and money and energy into it. Like I've seen, I saw my parents do it and 
I always knew that was, you know, important, the vineyards, but I really understood that much more like down to soil, learning more about soil types and how it translates into wine quality and weather and, you know, all these different factors and building on characters of, well, particularly Cabernet Sauvignon, yeah. Cabernet Franc and Merlot. So that for me was a huge takeaway. And that was my first experience to in biodynamic farming, which is something that I then brought back here. Uh, to what degree? Uh, to where we're farming biodynamically now. Okay. Yeah. But not looking to get season. certified. You're just using techniques. We're exploring it. We finally did the CCOF huh. certification, which yeah. like takes you halfway there. Um, but then, yeah, now we're exploring the Demeter certification. But we want to make sure it's something we really want to be part of. I think it's fairly expensive too before going into Like so they next... take a percentage of your profit. And next time yeah. we come here, we might see some Scottish Highland cows wandering yeah. the property. I mean, I wouldn't be mad about that. I've been pushing for larger animals for a while, but my mom has, because she lives here, has uh, some major pushback right. on that. <laughs> I was like, but what if like some sheep just appear? Right. They're already here. We already went through the trouble to bring them up here. Do we have to get rid of them? Give the corgi something to do. You I know. know. Give them a job. <laughs> they need it. <laughs> yeah well, you have horses too don't you i have one horse yes i've tried that for i'm still trying to get a horse up here um i mean I that'll really sort of like solidify the bordelais sort of feeling if you're you know oh, got yeah, a horse pulling exactly. a pulling a plow through this rest <laughs> yeah i did actually look into that um there was a guy that was at latour who was helping them because they do all their in row work with horses wow. and so i looked into because he didn't speak english so i was like okay well we can do like set up a kind of symposium or demo or week long training in napa um to get people interested in it but then i started thinking about okay look at like a row in france then bordeaux like one meter by one meter versus ours you know four or five six foot and like beyond um when it's flat there yeah and it's flat <laughs> and it's on rocks like you would need probably like four horses to go up um one of these rows and right. be able to like spade or till or do right. anything and then probably PETA would call it a certain way. I was like, going to say, you probably like horses too much to do that. Yeah. It'd be like, probably it'd be, it'd be a lot. So maybe well, not plowing, but can we talk about the soil here just a little bit? Mm -hmm. um, Cause it is, you know, it's yeah. striking a, and how different it is from the Valley floor, but right. you know, we're in bright red, you know, volcanic, yeah. uh, corgi loving yeah. <laughs> soils is it is it all sort of pretty much homogenous across the property it's pretty or what's, diverse okay. actually so we worked with uh i don't know if you know brenna quigley mm -hmm. so she's a geologist and she um in 2019 did this whole project all of her entire vineyard where he did like a ton of auger pits and mapped everything out and we keep all our lots separate for the first year of aging. So we taste it together through all the different blocks um, and start to put together, you know, wine, wine typicity to the different blocks, which is really cool. Yeah. Um, because that was something I wanted to do when I came back, just learning what I had done in Bordeaux, um, was to be able to fine tune the understanding of the soils in this property. And I always knew they were different because 
we have 18 blocks and every single wine is incredibly different. Mm. And most of it, it's all, almost all of it's on a Masal selection, like of our own cutting. So just a difference of rootstocks. So I was like, there has to be more, more to it. Right. Um, so, I mean, the soil series overarching is the uh, Boomer series. So it's um, a mix. So it's this very, typically this whole hillside is like red, iron rich, rocky clay loam soil. But then within this property, you have varying levels where it's more like in the Maya block, it's more like the stratified clay with smaller rocks strewn throughout. So it has really good, good water holding capacity, but the drainage is all equally as good. So that makes sense because the clay can have just enough water retention. It's like that Goldilocks spot of clay. Um, and then like in the back side of the property where our best Cab Franc is, it's this more, um, vigorous, darker, almost like a brown, orangey brown color, um, and more evenly loam throughout less rocks. Um, and then that's for the Cab Franc is like a sweet spot for it. And then over on this side here, it tends to be almost turned like a burnt light yellow orange the soil turns that color and then it's more like a sandy loam mm -hmm. throughout and then the front face is just like tons and tons of rock so yeah. we, we're on like a core stone volcanic uh hillside so what happens is basically over time water and minerals go down to the bedrock and penetrate through and create uplift these boulders that start kind of popping up so year after year it's like here comes another rock yeah, really yeah. Yeah. really like your most cool yeah. the most prolific crop you'll get uh, yeah is your rocks right yeah. my like, mom <laughs> likes to joke she's a rock farmer yeah. and then a yeah. grape farmer <laughs> two, two tons per acre cabernet three tons per acre yeah. basalt right yeah exactly and that was the other thing we found because um i don't know if you ever read the winemakers dance mm -hmm. david howell so he had always said like the stag lead palisade all the side is um pure andesite and so when brenna tested the rocks we found that it's actually more like andesitic basalt more towards the basalt side so right. and she told david howells that and he was like super excited this year like he's like oh i'm so excited like you're the future of napa geology and because it is really diverse here right. and she has like taken on a lot of other projects but it was really cool just to see like proof that how diverse this right. one spot is when that so. i mean the industry, and i would love you know one day to go through and taste those individual yeah. lots and you know have same variety same clone obviously mm -hmm. different soil yeah I and mean, that's what you know it's kind of stuff that yeah, Makes, we really can geek yeah. out about. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, should we pour the next wine as we keep going on this? Yeah. Sure. The the Kalina, totally interesting in that it's like, just when you think it's going to be too much and needs to, because it's 2019, yeah, needs to be laid down, but it is like still totally approachable. Mm -hmm. um, it is. Yeah. It is. And that's kind of, that was the whole intent of that wine. And Maya, was there always, when was the, the wine named after you? Um, when was that first um, out there? So, or were you named after the wine? No, no. no. That, I do get asked that a lot. I was like, no, I'm an only child, so my parents have to love me enough to do that. <laughs> uh, so I was born, when I was born, um, we had, my parents had already planted this block where when you drive into the entrance of the property, it's on the left. Uh, yeah, I love some. Thank you. 
and um, they saw potential in the vineyard and they thought it would be really nice to name the vineyard Maya after me. And then I, they decided to take it one step further and then create also a wine named Maya. Um, so how did you feel about that? I mean, I don't think I had a choice, right? I couldn't right. speak <laughs> or, or have any, couldn't read I think it's for quite sure. an honor. <laughs> it is a huge, I mean, now, yeah, I feel like it's a huge honor um, and, a, and a big uh, responsibility too. Yeah. And now you're making the wine that has your name on it. Um, yeah. You really don't want to mess it up. So <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, my parents were very clear when I could read when I saw all the boxes with my name on it, I told my parents, like, you can't sell this wine. It's my wine. It's all mine. It has my name on it. And they're like, okay, that's, let's be clear. Not how this works. Yeah, we love you very much. However, this is our wine, and we, we named after you because we love you, but you have nothing to do with that. It's two very separate things. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I don't think we have, they thought about what would happen, you know, over 30 years later, but at that time... They, yeah, they were very clear. Well, this is beautiful wine. Yeah. This Thank is you. stunning. That's so. Brian. This is our Cabernet. Um, Can I see that bottle? So, Brian, you've got this on list. No, no, but, but we've oh, had well. we yeah we we actually did we we've had uh, Dalavali wines on before, and the last stuff that I had was Maya. Okay. Um, um, but it's been a year or something since we've had it on the list. So okay. yeah, during the pandemic, yeah. I didn't buy anything. I, I don't over... think you were alone. In that. Yeah. <laughs> well, not, yeah. not from the consumer side. Consumers bought Consumers bought, a lot. restaurants did not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, whenever you're ready. I just emptied the cellar out and, and, <laughs> and took a while. And, you know, honestly, because I took over a list that had over 600 wines on it. When wow. you do that and you're not the one that did any of the tastings, right? you didn't meet anyone. Yeah. Um, it was nice to kind of tear it down and right. then start, start over fresh. It. Kind of yeah. make it your own in a way. Yeah. Cause I was used to that smaller list where I knew, I mean, I had tried every single wine and I knew all the names of everyone that was involved and, right. and knew them as, as people, um, yeah. which is, you know, what I'd love to get back to, but I don't think I'll ever get there with, I think I'm down to 275 wines, but and you'll, you'd have to travel more. I'd definitely yeah. have to do a little get, more traveling. Travel more. And uh, speaking of that, I want to make sure that we do talk about, is it DVO? Yes. Okay. I, even though I don't see any on the table, I really, it's, I'm <laughs> totally intrigued by that. I guess we'll have to, we'll have to crack in. Sam, well, I Sam has some. My, yeah. my dad got my, and I, I bought three. I bought a three pack with a club member. Um, so we'll open Kevin Burns's bottle. We'll save <laughs> we'll save my bottle in a Thanks, half. Thanks, Burnsy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one is. We made such a minuscule amount of. I mean, we made 400 cases of DVO, so I'm not at liberty to open it at will. Right. When I want. Also, but, it's a partnership, so I have to respect that aspect right. of it. And, and so you you worked at Ornelia. I did. And that's where we might as well just jump into it. Yeah, is yeah, that where that, um, you know, obviously that's where that relationship began. Yeah. I, I would say even before then, because Ornalia used to be partially owned by Mandavi, Mandavi family. Uh, so they had a previous Napa connection. So, um, they would come a lot to Napa and always had, you know, fondness for the Napa Valley. And then uh, after Mandavi was sold, they the Frescobaldi family who owned the other portion bought the other half and um, still currently 
own and operate it. And so we always knew the team just from, you know, interactions in the Valley. And then we used to have the International Cabernet Symposium in Oakville, which Axel would come to every other year. So Napa Valley was a very intriguing place for him. And so after I also then had the opportunity to work for him and learn from him in uh, 2013 and just really took in a lot and a lot of invaluable experience and we kept in touch. And uh, actually, I, I when I went back when I went to Bordeaux, I went back to school for a second master's, uh, partially in order to stay for, from a visa standpoint, and partially because I found the program really interesting. It was a vineyard and winery management master's, mm-hmm. and it was at the agronomic engineering school. Uh, it was called Inita, but now it's called Bordeaux Sciences Agro. And so that was the same school Axel went to. So when I went back to school, then he became my mentor when I did my thesis, and um, so you got to see him a lot more and then kind of naturally this conversation came up like, you know, how would you feel about making wine in Napa? And for me, I thought, well, it'd be really cool to make wine in Italy so I can go back to Italy yeah. more often. But obviously it's a lot, uh, easier, I would say it's to just create a new brand in the Napa Valley than it is in, in Italy. Um, so it said, yeah, I mean, let's let's try it. And so I did like a whole study of different AVAs and climates and microclimates and soil series. And we kind of started developing this concept, like what do we want to make together? Um, which obviously had to be Cab- Cabernet, which we both work with. And then we decided to work with Cabernet Franc. And now we've added Merlot as well um, since, you know, Masetto is one of the is probably the greatest, definitely the greatest Merlot in Italy and one of the great Merlots of the world. So it's been fun to be able to work with Merlot again, but trying to pick out different sites together at that. And then with people with a, this mind of, you know, sustainability and uh, organics in mind, uh, work with these different growers, including like your dad and start making a wine that's, it's distinctly a California wine, but it has, you know, a little bit of like Italian flair in a way and this air of restraint without making this really big, opulent, overpowering wine because it needs to reflect something, you know, both Ornelay and us believe in as right. winemakers. So how does the, I mean, other than obviously sourcing grapes from mm-hmm. places that aren't Dalavale, yeah. how is the is the production different than what you do for the Dalavale wines? A lot or smaller. Lot I mean, smaller, we make it but, here, but um, stylistically wise. Stylistically, I would say yeah, I, I it's a little more dialed back. Mm-hmm. I would say ever mm-hmm. so slightly, especially with like higher elevation fruit. Um, we like work with lower fermentation temperatures and do a slower, softer extraction and try to make something that's very seamless and balanced. Yeah. Are you at liberty to say some of the other fruit sources or? Uh, I, so obviously Oakville Ranch is one of the main sources, mm-hmm. I would say. And then um, Vine Hill Ranch on the west side. And then uh, is the source we no longer work with. It was up in Mount Beter um, near Mayakamas okay. Vineyards up there. And then in Coombsville was a couple of sites. Right. Yeah. But 400 cases, it's not like you're getting a lot from anywhere. No, right. it's all really small lots. And that, you know, that's kind of still the experimental phase of really understanding where it is we want to be. Eventually, we'd like to buy a vineyard and have a home for DVO. Huh. Um, but 
for the time being. It is really interesting to work with these different sites because you really, when it comes to blending, you can make exactly what it is that you want. So there's then it's like small changes year to year with stuff that just never made it in. Right. Um, or like not being able to keep a source anymore and then adding a different one to replace it. So eventually we might drive onto a property that has like a reconstructed Italian villa yeah. on it and brought <laughs> over stone know. by stone. Rick, yeah. I don't, yeah. yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. That wasn't a no. <laughs> I don't like making sweeping statements because usually I have to eat my words later. Right. I'm never going to France. Yeah. I've had, I've had a number of times I've done that in my life. I've made sweeping statements. Of, I'll never do this. And then I do it within five years time. So I will refrain. We're done. Yeah. You guys have Taste fun? the Cabernet and then shut up and go home. <laughs> well, yep. Cut it. Shout out to note. We're good. <laughs> it's beautiful we, one. We talk about the cab a little bit, sort of. Yeah. You know, your, yeah, your so, goals and style production. So the 19, so 18, every year I bring kind of like push things on to my mom and we work with Andy Erickson still. He's still on as our consultant. He's been with us since 2007 and really like working with them. But in 18, I was like, well, how do you feel about adding Enfora into the mix? And everyone was kind of like, mm, I don't really want to do it. But and, why, I, and why did you want to do that? Uh, because I was looking to add an element of complexity without adding more oak into right. the wine. Mm -hmm. And I had seen and tasted like at Ponte Cane, for example, which is another organic biodynamic estate in Bordeaux. They uh, were aging a lot in Amphora. And I thought, the, I love those wines. I think they're very pure and very distinct of a place, but without being kind of just like simple wines. Um, and then having tasted other um, colleagues, their Amphora versus barrel aged wines, I found very compelling and interesting. So I wanted to bring it into our program. Also, my argument was that our logo is actually a, a Phoenician Amphora. Right. <laughs> that um, makes sense. That we, my dad ask. had found from his scuba diving days, he used to do archaeological dives, and there was actually one that has like a spearfish gun hole through it because he had shot it thinking it was a fish. It was actually just an amphora. Whoops. Yeah. So that became then the symbol for our wine. So I was like, okay, well, if it if it doesn't work out, it would make a really nice decoration in the winery somewhere. Right. And it, they weren't horrendously expensive. So it was a pretty easy investment to make. Um, so you're, you're aging in the amphora? Are you fermenting yeah. and then aging? We always in, in, ferment like one amphora because it's about, it's, 320 liters so it's like a barrel and a half so you right. can put like a quarter of a ton in it the hard part is extracting it when you press it out and right. getting the rest of the grapes out that's usually the interns right. yeah, so say that's what interns are for yeah it's like <laughs> now let's see your technique this year yeah well, it's a lot luck. of fun yeah it's a fun little project to do it though and in, in the amphora but for aging so we age cabernet sauvignon cabernet franc and then in the 18 Cab, the Cabernet Amphora made it into the blend, and the 19, both Amphoras made it into mm. that blend. And actually, in the 20, which we just blended, we'll also have a Amphora aged lot in it. 
Um, cause every year I creep up the quality yeah. of the line <laughs> into it. Oh. It's like whole cluster. Everyone yeah. starts at a right. 10%. Yeah. Next thing you know, it's a yeah. hundred. Right. <laughs> the corgis, so, corgis approve of the whole, of the, uh, <laughs> yeah. too. Yeah. I, I like to put, we did a, there's a block right in front of the, this building it was called K block after Koji. It's Koji's block. And so we fermented, like we had replanted it and we fermented the first like year of fruit into the amphora and then put him on with a picture of him on top of his amphora block. <laughs> Something's got the corgis excited. It's probably yeah, an ATV or a car and something with wheels, a tractor. Uh, anything to run after. Yeah. That's... He will actually kamikaze face first. Oh my into, god! Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Especially now he's like he's extra senile. He will just go for it. Oh, John, yeah. can you imagine Corgi with a helmet? <laughs> yeah, I like it. I mean, that's the thing about Corgis is they're sort of like adaptable to any situation, right? You, mm -hmm. you, you know, get a Corgi that's half German Shepherd. It just looks like a German Shepherd with short legs, right? Yeah. So a Corgi yeah. with a helmet totally makes Very sense beautiful. to me. <laughs> he would probably, you should probably get him one, actually. <laughs> so did you like the way the wine turned out with the use of the amphora? Yeah, I'm really, I really love it. Um... I would say from an aromatic standpoint, the wines remain pretty primary in profile. So it would be like tasting a tank aged wine, but then the, the texture, um, especially if you have a lot where the tannins are a little bit rustic, mm -hmm. um, can really make it this very mineral pure texture. Mm -hmm. It's just like so pretty. And then to blend it in, it just makes the wine that much more rich without making it oakier. Right. Which I, which I really like. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. So, yeah, the Cabernet often gets overlooked, and people call it the regular Cabernet, which I always get very <laughs> defensive about because it's not regular. It's the only Cabernet, and it's really good. Um, so we actually all, we also changed on the label um, that, to the appellation specifically of Oakville because it was said Napa Valley because before, you know, Napa Valley is a stronger brand power than Oakville, but I think people are educated enough to yes. understand that Oakville is still in it's changing. Valley. Yeah. yeah. So the we'll people see. who need to know, know that Oakville is the spot. Yeah, it is. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's very diverse in terms of like geography and the kinds of wines you can make from here, but yeah, there's a lot of good, a lot of great vineyards within this. Oh yeah part of the valley up and down the valley Isn't yeah it amazing but really the, the diversity of oakville district in comparison to any of the other yeah. sort of napa appellations because we go from here where you know we're in this volcanic soil western right. exposure here you know up the, up the hill at oakville at oakville ranch um and then my guess is i don't know this but probably when you get below like your property mm -hmm the soil changes more to valley floor soil. And then you have yeah. all that valley, you know, it's, it's screaming Eagle. It's so it's silver Oak. It's, it's yeah. Opus one Mondavi Tokolon. And then it climbs up a little bit on the other side, totally different soil, different, yeah. different I mean, fauna. Even if you just look at one mountain range to the other. I mean, that one's like forested right. more densely and very dense. This is like all Oak and brush, right? The scrub Oak chaparral yeah. thing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, I mean, that says it all. I, you just look around what naturally grows around you. Yeah. Now this would normally be part of the show where we direct our listeners to maybe go to the website um, and look for wine. But first, are, do you even have wine available? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to tease anyone. 
I remember yeah. we, we did a, we went to Peter Michael as a staff one time and, and we got so engrossed in the, the tour and the tasting. Yeah. And then Beautiful we all, place. we all pulled out our wallets and we said, all right, cool. Well, we want to buy this and we want to buy this. And they yeah. said, oh, we don't have any wine for some. Like, yeah. We were like, what are you get, talking about? Get on the list. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we do have a waiting list on the website, but I would say, yeah. The wait isn't too long, question mark. <laughs> and then, the, you know, we sell to uh, independent retailers throughout the valley and, uh, and they're in restaurants and things like that. So And some national distribution? Oh, yeah, we're in about 15 different states. Um, so I wouldn't be able to name all of them off the top of my head, but we're in a lot of states. Yeah. So you can find us mattered around somewhere yeah <laughs> either in the u.s or internationally okay yeah because we've been see, actually seeing um a growing demand and interest in our wines abroad so we with the maya wine we work in the place de bordeaux we work with three negociants so they manage our export for most of the world for that wine and then along the way, we already had importers in certain countries, but we've added more for the other two wines because they'll come and taste and they'll love the other wines and want to pick them up too. So it's been, that's been a growing business as well, which is great to see for California wines, you know. Right. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. Selling, yeah. selling Napa Cab in Bordeaux. Yeah, you know? I know. Who would have thought they right. would see that day? <laughs> yeah, but they want. They want the best. You know, yeah. They've got the best over there, so mm-hmm. they want the best too. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's like, yeah, growing curiosity for what else is out there. I mean, well, now that they can, and now we've grown to a point that they enjoy it. Yeah. They can no longer say, no, no, it's all all French. You can't ignore California. No. I mean, you can't ignore Oregon. You know, I mean, there's a lot you can't ignore in the United States anymore. Yeah. 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 They're making it everywhere. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, pretty amazing when you think about the history and timeline of like west coast wine versus french and italian wine it's much shorter but the quality we've been able to achieve in a short amount of time has been pretty remarkable well you had good teachers yeah you really did absolutely Look where you've been and what you've what you've been able to do what you bring here yeah i am very fortunate i think being you know, in the industry already as a family, it's like hard not to take up all those opportunities and connections to take advantage of that. Yeah. So it is, it's not always that easy just to have, be able to be connected to all these different places. But Oh, no, it's yeah. not. You have to be born into it or you work your yeah. way into it yeah. for a long so, time. Always, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also a very humbling industry, just like farming and everything. You know, we always joke like you farm for the perfectly for the last season because <laughs> you're like i'm gonna do this perfectly this year because i learned xyz and then like none of that happens right. and it's like, completely Great. different yeah <laughs> like oh awesome it's like back to square one but that's what i love about it too like why would you have an ego in this business because <laughs> it's gonna get shot down so fast um and it's a great community too i mean it's so nice to be able to speak openly like with up, with other people in the industry and be able to like exchange ideas. And I've had a lot of people come taste like particularly my 2020s um, because I've like been so obsessive and I want to know like 
can what can you taste? Can you taste something off? Is there something weird about this wine? And to be able to have that transparency and like level of trust is really nice too. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that the California wine industry has brought to the world yeah. in a way. You know, you hear these stories about you know it's much more insular in in France where yeah. um, when Harry Karras was going through writing his like epic tome on Chateauneuf de Pop mm-hmm. and he would go, you know, he would just knock on people's doors and say, tell me everything that you're doing and write down this book. And then he'd get to the next place. And, you know, there were neighbors, but they hadn't talked to them in three generations. Yeah. You know, there was some, you know, some grandfather pissed off some grandmother a <laughs> hundred years ago and they don't talk. And they're like, Oh, what are they doing over there? You know, what, uh, what, what have they planted? Are they replant? You know? And it's just like in, in Sonoma and Napa, California, we, we all talk to each other about everything. It's right. a sort of like rising tides mentality. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that's probably part of the, a great part of the success. Right. And why we've been so successful in such a short period of time. But even like, yeah, my friends like who work at wineries in Italy, they're like in maybe lesser known regions. Like imagine if all everyone could get together and, you know, help build this region. But all they can do is look at their neighbor and be jealous constantly or like try to take them down because they don't feel like they're having the same success. So I think it's, yeah, we're very fortunate in that way not to be like that. Um, this is something I've seen in all the great Napa cabs of late, where, you know, when we tasted with uh, Rebecca, were you at the, the Rebecca Weinberg show? Yeah, you were, right? From Quintessa? No. Those no, 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 those wines. no. Um, you know, the Quintessa, you know, the new wines that she brought, um, the stereotype of Napa Cabernet being these just like over the top, over oaked, over fruit, uh, seems like, you know, certainly in a national lawn where that's not really the case anymore. No. Um, I still perpetuate that sometimes to sell some Sonoma Cab though. Yeah, well, you got to sell, <laughs> sell some Grenache, sell some, right? Oh, that's over the top. You don't want that. Here, <laughs> right. try this Stone Edge That's not going to go with your cod. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, can, you know, and this is something certainly in your lifetime for sure, but mm-hmm. in, in your time sort of here has been a, a shift um, talk about that a little bit is sort of like, you know, in, in our generation of, yeah. of, you know, winemaking around here, kind of how that shifted and, and what you think about it. Yeah. I mean, I think first there's this, um, strong desire to reconnect with vineyards. I think there was an era of winemaking where, um, you know, it was wine, wines were made in the winery. The vineyard manager did their thing. It's like, call me when it's 25 bricks and off we go. And I think that's completely not the case now. So many winemakers are very educated and interested and, you know, very involved in the vineyard. We've always been like vineyard because we grow the grapes too. It's like that's a majority of our years spent in the vineyard. And we spend a lot of time like weekly we'll do a vineyard walk together and we work with Steve Mathias and actually we're meeting with him for the first time today for the year to just go over everything and just understand because then once you have an understanding of the growing season and of that side and the vineyard the winemaking is like pretty simple I want to say at least at least sort of 
defines itself. Right. And then I think it then becomes more about respecting that site and respecting the vineyard and what the vintage is rather than trying to put your own stamp on something um, and can contort it in a way that it's not just not meant to be that kind of wine. Um, So I think you see a lot of that shift and then a return to balance. And I think that part of that is, you know, you want to drink what you make and believe in what you do. And we're fortunate, you know, we don't have investor outside investors or anything like that. So we can, we've always been able to dictate what kind of wine we want to make, um, without having to adhere to anybody else's beliefs or standards. So we've been fortunate in that way. And then I think there's other wineries who have, you know, inevitably chased trends, but also all you see the dial or pendulum going back to return to to more balance. But I think there always will be a place and people who make these big, big, heavy wines, which is fine. You know, there should be room in this industry and world for every kind of wine to exist. And like, who am I to say that my style of winemaking is the only way to make wine and everyone else is a shit? Like, that's really small minded. Like, I think I can appreciate every style of wine. It may not be something I want to drink a bottle of, but I can taste it and understand you know what it is they're trying to achieve so you see i think you see a lot of that in the younger like our generation of winemakers um and i mean i think i think it's a positive especially connecting you know farmland and vineyards and really focusing on you know sustainability organics and beyond yeah i think that's it's a really positive thing because especially our generation too like from a consumer standpoint they're looking for authenticity. They're looking to know like you're doing your part to make, you know, a responsible wine or product and not just, you know, doing a whole flashy show of smoke and mirrors. They want real substance. Well said. Amen. (laughs) Let's let's try the Maya. For sure. (laughs) The finale. Oh, we have a psalm here today. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I can. Even wore his sport coat. I like it. Well, he, he's heading right to work and right to pick the kids up. He's got I like good. this. Yeah, I'm picking up the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but pouring wine is the one thing I like. Without those drop stops, I'm really truly. These hopeless. are incredible. I don't work with them, and and I kept trying to wipe because I yeah, thought it was yeah. going to drip, and it's not dripping at all. It's. It's a lifesaver. Yeah. If I have to pour at a tasting, like we do a lot of charity events. And then if I don't have those drop stops, it's like, it looks like a crime scene on yeah. the, <laughs> especially when they do a white, like a white tablecloth is especially cruel in my opinion. It's Thank yeah. You. White tablecloths, white pants, white shirts. Yeah. That's, you know, Burgundy. I'm actually, Burgundy. I was, I was out of tie dye today. Which is why I didn't wear one, but that's you know, I could spill wine on my tie dye shirts all day long, and nobody will ever know. Is that part of your your work uniform? Exactly. <laughs> How many tie dye shirts do you own? Fifty. Uh, it's not. It's not quite. It's in the high twenties. Well, they sell yeah. them. You know, it's it's, right. it's it's their brand. It's our only merch. It's the brand. Oh, really? Yeah. No, yeah. I want one. I should have brought it's one. Grateful Dad. Nick. Well, you didn't have to come taste through uh, the sixteen yeah. six hundred lineup now. I'd love we have, to. A little more than three wines, but a lot smaller production on all of them. Yeah. But you know, a little Grenache from up the hill. I know. Um, and you know, we make some cab, but for the most part, it's Rhones and Zin, and you know, all the That's awesome. all these all the vineyards Rhone-centric. we get to farm. Yeah. 
very run centric, and, and it really came from Sandra Bernstein at the yeah. Girl and Fig. She had a lot to do with it. Shout out really? twenty five years. Yeah. I mean, we we talk about that a lot as far as you know from the Sonoma side. Um, she really taught a lot of us about yeah. you know the world of Rhone varieties, whether it's from California or from France, from Australia, from wherever, um, and kind of opened it up so that, you know, we could have a tasting room that pours three Grenaches yeah. as, you know, part of the tasting and a Syrah and is in, you know, um, so that's great. Brought us, you know, biodiversity. Yeah. yeah. That is important not to have. Yeah. Only, one Tell thing. us about what, we're, what we are about to drink. Uh, so this is Maya. So this is our special cuvee. And it's always been a Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc blend since the beginning. And classically, it was 55% Cab, 45% Cab Franc. Um, with the exception of one vintage in 89, they decided to inverse the blend. So 55, 45 Cab Franc Cab. Um, and then now we make it a little bit differently. Um, like the way we pick the Maya blocks, it's a pretty, it's like five acres total and it's within two blocks. And then within that, within the main portion, we'll, because it's a north-south orientation more or less, so you have a distinct morning side and afternoon side of sun. So we'll actually do like two passes. So pick the morning side and one pass is always the first and then you know, between five to seven to 10 days later, we'll pick the afternoon side. Hmm. So it gives us more components uh, in the blending process to become a little bit more precise. And then when we replanted, my mom added more Cabernet Franc because we've always had Cabernet Franc since the beginning. We've always loved working with it. And it's just really great for blending. One of my favorites. Yeah, Cabernet. we love it. It's a, you know, it's, it requires a little more hand-holding as a grape than Cabernet Sauvignon, but I think the reward is just as high, if not greater. Um, so we added more Cab Franc, so it adds a little bit more uh, lots to choose from when we're making the blend. It definitely, ha I mean, has what I think of signatures of Cab Franc, especially aromatically, you know, some of those floral elements. Mm -hmm. uh, some a lot of those. Like violet, mm -hmm. the dried herbs, and then I like that black olive too. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I, I know the Cab Franc up the hill is highly sought after and mm -hmm. it's one of Andy's favorite things to get his hands on. Oh, yeah. Um, do you see a difference in Cab Franc on, you know, this side of the, the valley, these soils than than other places? You know, what do you th I mean? I, yeah, I, I was fortunate enough. We have we have uh, 50 cases of Oakville Ranch Cabernet Franc 2019 coming out sometime soon. Hint, hint. That's cool. Yeah. You keep coming up with I this. I know. Well, I just, like, well, our business model is uh, have no business model. <laughs> so we just, you know, doing well. if it's available, we get it. Um, but there is something special about Cab Franc from this little slice of the world. Yeah, it's something, I mean, for me, the texture is so unique from this hillside of Cab Franc and also the aromatics. Like, it just, it just has this intensity where you, just don't find it in other Cab Francs around the valley. And um, I feel like this is like one of the first places that, that the pyrazines burn off pretty mm -hmm. fast. So mm -hmm. it's hardly ever like sometimes now I'm picking a little bit earlier. You'll see a little hint of it in some of, in some of our wines um, in the beginning of aging. And then it always burns off. But I, I don't mind like that little hint of 
pepperiness in the wines. Yeah, um, yeah it just depends on the style yeah. you're going for, but it's super unique and it has this intensity where you just, I haven't experienced that in any other AVA really. Yeah. I don't know if you have the same feeling about it. No, I think that it's, this is yeah. the only place that I would want to do Cab Franc that I get to get Cab Franc yeah. from. Uh, there's, there's a, um, then your comment about the pyrazines burning off here earlier is, is on point. I think, um, what I love about Oakville Ranch Cabernet Franc and, and get it here is that you, um, you kind of get past that green pepper and you get into this, like, you know, the aroma of pulling roasted red peppers out of, you know, off yeah. the grill or out of the, yeah. out of the oven or something. So it's, it's like a savory, it's, like yeah, almost umami. Exactly. It's got a little sweetness, mm-hmm. but it's got this like really sort of rich earthiness thing yeah. that happens along with that sort of like violet floral kind mm-hmm. of, uh, you know, structure to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's special stuff. So the Maya has always been just a specific block yeah. or section of mm-hmm. this vineyard. Yeah. It's not just like a best barrel kind mm-hmm. of compilation. No. Cause then we don't want things to take away from the Cabernet Sauvignon. So it's interesting that you, the typically the base of the cab comes from the block just across the road when you drive in. So the left side's Maya's block and the right side's the block called GDB. And my mom, when we first started with the idea of working on a salt selection, um, she was like, oh, I'll just put Maya's cuttings all over. And she's like, I'm gonna plant the same rootstock and the same Maya's, Maya's cab and it'll be all become Maya. And then it's like completely wrong. Like everything, that block actually took a lot of time um, to kind of control the vigor in hmm. particular, because that, is still part of that back area where you have this more vigorous, deeper, richer soil. Um, and so it just would just, we'd have to such a hard time controlling the crop. So we actually started arching the canes to break up the vigor, um, which made a huge difference. And then the quality just like shot up where mm-hmm. now it's, yeah, become one of the. Can you explain that a little deeper? Of controlling the, the, the vigor. Controlling the, vigor. the canes. Yeah. I mean, so everything about, you know, for farming grapes is you want to balance. Well, it depends on what your end goal is, but for us, we want to have old vines and we want to be able to have healthy vines and also have a healthy crop and a high quality crop. So if you have um, like a deep rooting soil where there's a good access to water and the vines don't really have a lot of stress in particular, um, it can crop pretty heavily. And then it, you just don't have the same color intensity. It takes longer to ripen. You, yeah, you have tend to have more piercing. The wine just tends to be out of a little bit out of balance. So by, and it was growing these big, massive bowl canes, which is like a really thick, wide cane. So what we would start to, what we started doing was arching it. So by arching the cane, you kind of break up the flow a little bit and make the, give the vines like a, for a, a level of stress, I would say, in a way. And so- it creates competition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're creating competition within the singular vine for it to access those nutrients and water and resources. So that helped naturally devigorate the the vine itself. Yeah. So John, if you, you'll see it, and we'll maybe we'll point it out as we drive out of here. Um, we'll do it a lot, especially like Valley Floor Cab, where instead of, 
the when you train, you know, after you prune, you train canes out on a right. wire. You do this sort of. Yeah. It's an arch. Mm-hmm. You You've probably seen it before. You just didn't know yeah. what it yeah, was. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and it makes it look. It, a, it looks very intentional, right? You have to like actually go yeah. out there yeah. and sort of like do it by hand. It's not something that just you know happens. Um, but the idea is, you know, if you have a plant, the you know, if you have a tree and you prune the tree, whatever is the highest point on that tree is going to grow first, mm-hmm. and it's going to have this what's called apical dominance, and that's going to be the strongest growth. And then what comes out from the sides won't quite get the same amount of attention from the plant. So by doing that arch, you kind of break up the apical dominance because it's not just going to push harder at the end of the cane. It'll sort of like spread yeah, it out spread across, the, across the positions. <laughs> so it's, um, but you know, that's an extra hour, you know, per block or two hours per blocks of, of training and tying. Yeah, it's just, it's also it's terrifying time. tying it because right. you don't want to break the cane. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it takes, yeah, yeah, you have to go slower. It becomes, it's, you know, we talk about this all the time. It's skilled labor, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's uh, and having an in-house, you know, yeah. vineyard crew here where, you know, those, those guys and those gals know every vine, you know, oh, like, you know, every corner, right? They're the people here yeah. by far. Like they, yeah, without them, there's no way that we can do what we do. Yeah, they, they're they a very, very integral part. Amen. Yeah, and yeah, they how, don't get enough credit. How many people do you have, do you employ year-round? Uh, so it's we have a crew of seven, and then Edgar is our vineyard manager who lives on site. Um, and then we keep, because we have, we have four that stay year-round, and then the rest, um, there's a couple of guys that go back to Mexico. They have their family there. So, um, they'll leave for a couple of months in the winter and then come back for pruning. Yeah. So yeah, that stay. Otherwise they stay around. I mean, 20 acres, it makes it be like, it's a very sane amount of vineyard to, to manage. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And, I keep yeah. it that. And, it's like, and then yeah. like, we've gotten, there was a period of time, like we, there was always like two people who'd have to keep rotating because vineyard management companies would offer a much higher salary than what we can offer by like no benefits. And then they get usually let go by the end of the year, but yeah. maybe in whatever situation they had, maybe they just need that extra money right now. So then what we started seeing is now we have like a full crew and like no, everyone came back last year. Cause I think like it, you take pride in what you do in your work and to be able to come to the same place every day through the whole season. And like, we just hired a guy who was working for a farming company and switched to us. He said, this is great because I don't feel like also rushed all the time to do everything. Like I can actually take time and thought and care into pruning and suckering. And, you know, those are really important vineyard operations where you don't want to rush it. Especially we do mostly cane pruning. So that requires a lot more um, intention and thought and philosophy behind it versus just like cordon going down the line. But even that takes, you know, you need to have a brain and have an intention in what you're doing. Yeah. Isn't that like, was it, was it you that we were talking about bees the other day? How there's, it's a huge business. So these guys that drive their bees around to different properties. Oh yeah. yeah. But it's kind of like having, it's having your own hives right here on property instead of bringing someone in that brings yeah. their, these bees that are like, okay, where are we today? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's go I mean, pollinate yeah. something. Yeah. We tried to do bees last year. They all left us. Oh. So yeah. Bees, try are, again. Bees are tough. Yeah. They went to greater pastures. 
You know, yeah. Well, no, somewhere, around. Yeah. They're somewhere around, you know, they're hanging. Yeah, we've all <laughs> like really slighted, passion. you know, we're like, we right. gave you like this home and you know, our house isn't good enough. Stuff to eat. Yeah. Insectary rose right. and the wisteria right here that's in full bloom here. And yeah. maybe life March was 7th. too good for them. They were like, no, they wanted a little stress and challenge. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like the corgis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I feel like. We maybe haven't given your mom quite the due no, we that, that we deserve to. Yeah. And, and in that, this, <laughs> this isn't going to come out on International Women's Day, but today is International Women's oh, Day. Yeah. Can we um, just kind of like talk about your mom's role in yeah. in this place and, and in the Valley in general and um, yeah, you know, sort of what, what she's done in her, in her career here? Yeah, she, so to her credit, so my dad passed away in 95 and... Uh, we have no family in the U.S., so all my family is in Japan or in Italy. So she was left basically as a single mom, with this whole property and business to run and kind of was faced with the decision, you know, do I stay in the valley or try to make this work or sell everything and go back to Japan where I have, you know, family and um, more support. But at that point, you know, she really felt very embraced by this community and felt like she had an extended family through friends and other wineries. And she had fallen in love with, you know, the property and this business that her and my dad started together. And so she just, I don't think she even had like a moment of thought about it. She just said, you know, I'm going to keep this business. I'm going to keep running it. And then she really took it and elevated it and made it to where it is today, like single-handedly. I mean, we don't have a huge staff. We don't have sales and marketing people and reps or tasting or hospitality people. We have, now we have two people in the office, but up until last year, it was just one person in the office helping her, a vineyard manager, now myself, and then we have a seller master and then our crew of guys, and that's it. So it was like, she really put everything into running and growing this business day to day and made it into a reputable place that is now and like including replanting entire vineyard, deciding to build, you know, expand this new building and actually taking out vines so we could have space and offices and a new barrel room to work with and making the sacrifice of, you know, not taking on any investors or having partners mm -hmm. and keeping the business afloat while making like, I think in 2004, we made 400 cases of wine total mm. and just sold. That's why we have no library wine or just personal, you know, collections of wine from the nineties. Cause that's how she survived was selling off, um, selling all the library wines to stay afloat. Huh. So she's, you know, and she's always made this dedication to quality and, you know, making the sacrifice, she tried buying grapes to add, like to help supplement that vintage where we made no wine. She's like, I just, she's like, it wasn't the same quality. Like I just couldn't put it in. Like we can't make Maya. There's no Maya vineyard. Why would I make it? Right. And so I think that's, you know, a, a huge credit to her tough decision-making to why we are and who we are today. And I think, yeah, I, I think she's happy that I get to work with her now and, and learn from her, but She's also, I think her other love now is uh, uh, philosophy, philanthropy. Um, so she's very, very involved um, with organizations like Ole Health. Um, mm. 
which is a nonprofit healthcare, which was originally started for migrant farm laborers and now serves, I think, like one in five people in Napa County. So anyone right. can go. Um, if you don't have any insurance, that's fine. And you can get preventative health care and just access to resources about, you know, nutrition or mammograms or like, you know, health screenings and all those things that you would not have access to if you didn't have insurance and making it accessible for really anyone. So she's on the board now with that organization and is very heavily involved with that. Before when there was the Napa Valley wine auction, she was very involved with that because that organization, that auction took all the money and put it back specifically into this community. So mm -hmm. she felt like the Valley has given her so much. She wants to give back in her own way. So, cool. yeah. I hadn't really thought about the sort of timeline of all of that. If the, the hundred point Maya was the 92 vintage, yeah. that was right around the time that yeah. your dad passed away. It was and, literally, yeah. we found out like a month before he passed away. So Bob Parker knew my dad was really sick. Um, so he was nice enough to forward us the advance copy. So then my dad, you know, passed away shortly after, but he left us knowing like we were going to be okay. It right. wasn't going to be, yeah, that's know, pretty amazing. yeah. Right. So that was, it was very, uh, yeah. Sentimental. I would say in that respect, it's a great story. Business. Yeah, yeah. It really is. Yeah. yeah. Not that, I mean, now, I mean, what, I don't even know what hundred points means right. I mean anything I mean I guess it means it's really good but right um in that time yeah it was really important it was, everything. It was right. everything it was everything yeah the lines are beautiful man. yeah they are I was just tasting the Maya right now again <laughs> thank it's, you it keeps getting better and better and better yeah this one it's a very philosophical wine you just need to I'd like to see how this it. changes tonight tomorrow yeah. Yeah. Well, you can take it with you. How about oh, tonight? Wow. Nicely done, John. Fight, like about, fight over it on the way, <laughs> on the way back no, to Sonoma. It wasn't where I was going Set with that. Set the it's intention. Just, yeah. it's simply the Manifest fact that, yeah, that they change sure. so much. Yeah. You know? They do. All three of them, just in the time they were yeah. Yeah. last talking. Yeah. 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 I've kept a little of each here. I'm yeah. A, B. Showed more B, restraint C. than I did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we can you can have a second floor. <laughs> we're not stingy here. <laughs> Because we don't see very many people. <laughs> right. right. We're, the, we're the extent of the guests for the day. Yeah, By the way, are, yeah. We literally and, are. And uh, Bart did want me to say that he is uh, planning oh, a right. virtual tasting of his spring releases and others. There's uh, no date yet. Well, I know. I love that he wants us to make an announcement, but he yeah, has no date. He has, he's done no planning <laughs> for. <laughs> just mention that I'm oh, thinking the... of something. Our, board, our, our yeah. uh, partner in the podcast, Bart okay. Hens from Dane Sellers. He's on special assignment, moving his mom from Petaluma to Sonoma. So, Ooh, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't postpone that. No, there yeah. was he tried. <laughs> I think it didn't it didn't go it didn't go well. <laughs> but mom, I'm going to Napa to talk yeah. to a vineyard. Yeah, <laughs> winemaker. So, yeah, okay. On that note, are there any events or things coming up that you have you know all over the country? I know you do a. Uh, you spend a fair amount of time in the air. Um, yeah, more can, than I'd like to, I'd say, yeah. admittedly. But, um, you know, not really the coming up. I know we have the Ole Health, the Salute event, um, yeah. which is coming up in May. Uh, I believe it's May 14th, 13th or 14th over that weekend is the Salute event. And that all 
benefits Ole Health, which is the organization I talked about a little bit earlier. And will you spell that for people and tell people so? Yeah, O O L E. Yep. With like an accent Olay. over the E. Yeah. Ole. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, and then beyond that, yeah, I think I think I'm going to start tamping it down so that I can focus on you know blending and bottling and then harvest. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So you're bottling twenties. This sometime this we're spring. gonna bottle the twenties in August. So okay. typically a bottle in July, but just given the nature of the vintage, we thought why not give it one more month just in uh, case. But I yeah. we're like the truck is scheduled. I have all the bottling supplies ordered. Right. If they arrive in time or <laughs> the not. Glasses <laughs> somewhere between yeah. somewhere in the ocean, maybe, or somewhere Perhaps, on, a tr- yeah. on a truck somewhere, or yeah. is that Maybe it doesn't exist is yet. That getting, yeah. Is it getting any better for you? Uh, Supply-wise? No. It's yeah. not. Uh, corks are easy. Uh, labels are easy. Uh, it's the capsules and the glass, which neither are made here. That makes it yeah. really tricky. But I made that order in uh, August of 2021. So I would hope with one year... <laughs> you would think, knock on but, this yeah hand hewn table from this morning mm. and i know yeah. i just got an email um from one of our barrel suppliers that because of the situation in ukraine they said those containers or shipments that are delayed 50 to 60 days additionally on top of what yeah mm, yeah. yeah now this is all those supply chain stuff at least when it comes to this business is going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. For sure. So Maya will be in a green Vino Verde bottle next year. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we joke about it now, but actually, you you never know what can happen. Fanciest Napa Riesling you're going to find there. Yeah, So exotic. All right, John. Well, thank you so very, very much for having us over. Yes. Thank you for such coming pleasure. all the way over and, to the dark and, side. <laughs> now, the, the other thing is. She said it. Is there, is <laughs> it there wasn't anywhere that you know specifically that we can buy this wine? Um, does uh, Possibly Benchmark, maybe. Benchmark. Yeah. We'll have our okay. wines online. Yeah. Um, and then after that, we work with In the Valley Acne. The ladies at Acme Fine Wine. Um, I know Gary's. Okay, Oak, that Oak was gonna, I was going to ask about Gary's. Acme yeah. just launched a very beautiful new website. If you want to go check it out. I would love to. Yeah, yeah they love do a to. great job. And then um, Carrie Laz, her tasting room, she includes our wines in her tasting lineups. Uh, um, so those, that's an opportunity where you could try our wines. We should give a little shout out to the the K Laz uh, way of doing Napa tastings. It's yeah. I think it's a different lineup almost every yeah. every day or guests or um, and it's great stuff. Hard to find from up mm-hmm. and down the valley. Occasionally we, you know, she's there's a bottle that sneaks over the hill into that lineup. But um, if you're coming to Napa, yeah, uh, you know, coming to visit getting a reservation there is a way to taste all kinds of things, you know, in one place that you really can't do on any other way. Yeah. It's very unique. I don't know. I mean, Acme does some tastings too, but she really curates specific experiences like that where it's multiple bottles and multiple producers and mostly if not all smaller producers. Mm -hmm. So it's a nice way to, to taste uh, Napa wines in one place. Totally. Yeah. 
All right. Is that it? Any shout outs today, Brian? Uh, no, no, just, it, you know, I want to let people know that live locally, that we are going to start doing live music out in front of the Fairmont again. So the food truck with, uh, um, I, and I'm the one booking the bands and you, this <laughs> year. And listen, man, you've already got some good people booked. Uh, we got Tony Saunders. We got David Aguilar. I got Davis. Royal Jelly Jive. I got Sean Carscadden. We got, we're, we're going to have a good year this year. Excellent. Yeah. That's a fun deal. It really so is. Fridays and Saturdays, five to eight until later on in the year. We'll switch to six to nine because it's ungodly hot at five o'clock in, yeah. um, in July or whatever. But um, <laughs> but yeah, in the meantime, just come out and support us. Don't bring any outside food and drink. Uh, get a bottle of uh, Dalavale and, and bring it over and have it with some of our... Because uh, it's, like you said, the cleanest, right? It's for like a Tuesday night. And Yeah. 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 And having the Maya may be an expensive food truck experience, but Polina <laughs> could definitely, you know, but I got no problem. Highbrow, lowbrow, right? You could yeah. do both. You know, got no problem with you know. <laughs> I don't agree with the whole special occasion crap. I think yeah. if no, well, especially know. now. I think uh, past few years, the best time is now. Right. Did <laughs> you sure. open anything special for open that bottle night? From the New York, from Wall Street Journal, like oh. Dottie and John with Dottie. It was just like a, a couple weeks ago, yeah. right? Was it? I have to say, I missed that day. Right. I'm very sad I if did. You have, you know, if you follow Maya on Instagram, um, open that bottle night is pretty, pretty regular occurrence. <laughs> I understand. Yeah. Understand. I, pretty epic wines that it's just, you, you know, to- I like that. And it, and it reminds me to, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to save that. I want to drink it. Let's, Thank let's right. open it. There's yeah. more Damn wine it, out there, it. John. Don't worry. That's so. what wine is for. It's yes. Oh yeah, drunk, I so and enjoyed. I don't. Here. I don't keep wine. Right. I drink wine. Yeah. So. Smart. All right, guys. Uh, I got. Uh, there's yes. Vinyl Sunday things happening in the oh, world. Oh, when? Uh, well, we're gonna do a hybrid virtual with a live studio audience, uh, May first. Oh my and god. And then, oh. yeah. Wait, what does that mean? Exactly? I don't know yet. <laughs> okay. <laughs> At least I have a date. I've gotten more planning done than Bart did. Uh, okay. And then May 8th, Mother's Day, I will, um, I've gotten a hall pass. Uh, <laughs> talked, talked to the wife. Uh, and I will be at, Brooke and Randy Hester's oh, yeah. uh, in Are Austin you doing, taking Vinyl Sunday on the road. Excellent. Uh, at CL. Butau. Uh, and he's in France right now. They're in now, France right yeah. now. Yeah, it's okay. the, the email um, response. Not like I'm fast on it either, but there's definitely been some delay. I think they're having a good yeah. time over there. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So Looks that's like it. May 8th. I'll, I'll be going to Texas. Hopefully they'll let me back out. Uh, I think so. <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see. If they let you in. The first yeah, if they let me in, they'll let me out. Um, so that's happening. And then more. Stay tuned. More Vinyl Sunday back live in person happening this summer. So I'm excited. Normal life coming back a little right. bit. No, yeah. Right. Yeah. Maya, thanks again. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you, Maya. See you next week.